right. Well, for those of you whose children are staying in with us, just by way of reminder, they're most welcome to, to stay in the service with us too. Uh, we love having them learning just the rhythms of worship alongside of us. Um, as is our custom for this portion of the service, we just have been reading for some time now uh, our confession of faith, the London Confession of Faith, and we've just been going paragraph by paragraph through uh, the London Confession of Faith, and we started last week reading through chapter 9, which is the confession summary of what the scriptures say regarding free will, and this morning I want to read paragraph 2. It says this, Humanity, in the state of innocence, which is pre-fall, had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet, this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. There was a possibility for man to fall from his original state. And as we'll see as we continue to work through the confession, that it summarizes that fall as well. And so that is paragraph two of chapter nine in the chapter related uh, to free will. And just by way of reminder, we read these paragraphs in the context of everything that's gone before and in keeping in mind what's coming ahead. But we read it left to right. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And we are this morning going to look at verses 33 to 41. Verses 33 to 41. This is immediately following, uh, is, and, I, and I'll say this just by way of reminder more in, in a moment, but immediately following the second plain teaching of Jesus about the nature of his messianic mission. And so let's pick up verse 33. John Mark, he penned these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has preserved it for us so that we can have confidence that What we are reading is everything that God wants us to read. But the scriptures say this. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last. You hear that static? Can you hear me? If it keeps... Could be user error. You're blaming me? I think I'm I'm good. If it keeps doing that, I may switch to this, Andrew. All right. We'll pick up verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, 
whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We thank you, God, that there's passages that we can be so familiar with, but because your spirit because of the nature of your word, God, it can penetrate our hearts, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, shape us. And God, we ask that that would be the case now. And Lord, we look this morning to Christ who is our Savior. And as we're going to talk about more, we also look to Christ who's our example. He's our Savior and our example how we should live. We thank you for that. And so, Lord, I pray that everything that we consider this morning, particularly as it relates to serving, God, that we would consider this staying tethered to Christ, staying tethered to the reality that it's his works alone that have justified us and that keep us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me zoom out just for <clears throat> a moment because I want us to, to notice a pattern. Uh, and, and I will, Lord willing, I'm going to bring this uh, back up, uh, back to your attention when we uh, uh, hit another passage coming in, in, in chapter 10. But if you remember last week, we spent time considering Jesus's, uh, his second plain teaching in Mark regarding the nature of his first advent ministry, right? That the son of man must suffer many things, that he must die, and that three days later, he'll resurrect. Uh, this is a ministry, if you will, his first advent ministry. The first advent ministry of Jesus is a ministry of descent. It's a ministry of humility, a ministry of giving of oneself. And it's contrasted this morning with the pride of the apostles, right? Quote, who will be the greatest is what they're arguing about, what they're wrestling with. Right? We saw when Jesus first plainly taught about his sufferings and death, that it was immediately followed by Peter attempting to rebuke him, right? We, we saw that back in chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. In chapter 10, and again, I, I, we're going to revisit this but when we get there. But in chapter 10, we'll see Jesus give another plain teaching about his coming suffering in verses 32 to 34 of chapter 10. And it's immediately followed by James and John asking Jesus if they can sit at his right hand and at his left hand 
in glory. Right? And, and this all happens after Jesus teaches them that the, the path of following him is the path of the cross. Right? It's the path of the cross. So there's this pattern that we see um, uh, with Jesus on the one hand, who's humble, right, losing his life for the redemption of his people. And then we see that immediately followed up, this pattern of be, immediately being followed up by this pride in this self-exaltation of the 12 apostles. Okay, so our passage this morning, it's, it's more critical than we may think upon just first considering it because it, it begins to clue us into this pattern, right? It's the Spirit showing us what was going on in the minds and in the hearts of the 12 apostles that contributed to the, the spiritual dullness that we talked about last week, right? We see what it is, some of what's going on underneath that contributed to the unbelief. We see what's going on underneath that contributed to their shock regarding the nature of Jesus's messianic mission, right? We see it we see what was going on as it related to their inability to cast out uh, the demon that we saw a couple of weeks ago, right? And, and what we see is that it had to do with their desires. It had to do with what, with what was going on in their hearts. Now, look at the text with me just as we think through this together, okay? First, we, we see, if you're, lo- you're looking at the Scripture with me, First, we see that Mark, he, he opens this paragraph, he opens this section up for telling us that this all happened while the apostles uh, and Jesus were on the road to Capernaum, but we only learn about what was this argument that was taking place after they arrive, and they arrive at what, uh, what Mark and he, uh, puts as the house, uh, probably uh, Peter's house, as, as we have seen his his home is a, a sort of base, if you will. And they're going to remain, just by the way, they're going to remain in this house through to verse 50. Now, Matthew's account of this, and, and it, both Matthew and Luke uh, record this for us, but in a more shorthand way. Mark actually gives us the most detail, but Matthew's account says that the apostles asked Jesus who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We see that in chapter 18, verse 1. Luke's account tells us that Jesus perceived their thoughts, right? He read their mind, chapter 9, verse 46. But Mark tells us that Jesus asked the apostles what they were arguing about. And the way that we harmonize this is by seeing that all three perspectives are true, okay? One doesn't cancel out the other, right? Jesus is God, so he knows the hearts and the intentions of man, right? Luke's account, right? He didn't ask the apostles the question because he didn't know the answer to the question, right? He asked them because he's leading them. He was discipling them, right? Matthew's account has it that the apostles asked Jesus the question, and that could very well be them answering Jesus's initial question that we see recorded by Mark. So, there really is no conflict here between these gospel writers. And in reading these three accounts together, these, the three gospel writers, known as the synoptic gospels, they can help to give us a fuller picture. But Jesus, according to Mark, he asked the apostles what they're arguing about. And we have their initial reaction recorded for us by Mark. And it's the only, Mark is the only one who gives us this initial reaction 
reaction. He says that they fell silent, quote, but they kept silent. That's what Mark says. How long was the question I was asking as I was thinking about this passage? How long was there this awkward silence, right? Who who was going to be the one that confessed on behalf of everybody else what it was that they were talking about on the road to Capernaum? We don't have any evidence of this. I would imagine it was Peter. He's been the, the bold spokesman so far, right? He's already had one rebuke by Jesus. Why not another rebuke from Jesus, right? <clears throat> but maybe it was him. But Mark, he doesn't even record the apostles answering Jesus's question. But what we do know is that Jesus is extending to them and his asking of the question, he's extending to them an invitation to confess. It's an invitation to confess, right? The Jesus, the, 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 this Jesus who knows the hearts of the apostles, the, this Jesus who knows the intentions of man, he invites the apostles to confess, but not to confess so that they can just get it off of their chest, but so that they can be corrected. But they're not eager to do that, so they keep silent. They keep silent. Now, why? Why did they keep silent? The language that Mark uses about the apostles keeping silent in this passage, it's reminiscent of the Pharisees falling silent in Mark chapter 3, verse 4. If we remember back to that, verse, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 4, it says this, Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And here's the Pharisees' response. But they kept silent. But they kept silent. The silence of the apostles here, right? And and, and I think the nature uh, of, of Mark using such similar language, connecting it here to the Pharisees, I think the silence indicates just the penetrating nature of Jesus's question, right? Jesus, he searched them and they knew it, right? He searched them and they knew it. And get this, they knew that they were wrong. They knew that they were wrong. If you're taking notes and and kids, you can look on with your parents, but this is what I'd have you jot down. Jesus targets our disordered desires. Jesus targets our disordered desires, The apostles are silent in Mark's account. They don't answer Jesus. Perhaps their own conscience is, 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 is keeping their mouth closed. But Jesus, he, he continues with his agenda and his agenda is soul care. It's soul care. Note that after Jesus asks the question, right? He, he sits down in the house, which was a common posture that a rabbi would take when he was going to instruct his disciples. And he begins to address what they were disputing by targeting what was in their hearts. He says it this way, if anyone, and the word is desires, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And it made my mind go to James when he's instructing Christians about these fights and quarrels that they were having, right? Fights and quarrels, that was bad, right? And it seemed like the, the apostles on the way to Capernaum, they were fighting, they were 
quarreling, but what gets addressed is one underneath it. What causes, James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? Right? He gets underneath and we see Jesus attacking the desire, the sinful desire that the apostles were exhibiting. Right? And, and, he, and so he, what, what they were desiring was to be first, to prioritize themselves, right? Even amongst themselves, they wanted a, a sort of, of hierarchy. And so Jesus says, if anyone desires to be first, which is apparently what they were arguing about, he shall be last of all. He'll be servant of all. All right, so the apostles, they were arguing about who was going to be first. Jesus had just finished teaching them about the nature of his messianic ministry. And almost immediately after that, they began to argue about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who was going to be the chief, who was going to be first. All right, one commentator says this. He says, this section of scripture, it reveals a jarring contrast between Jesus's humility and the disciples' desire for distinction and recognition. Now, who do the disciples sound like? They sound like the Pharisees, don't they? They sound like the Pharisees here. We've already made the connection between their falling silent with that of the Pharisees. And I think Mark captures the similarity here by the Holy Spirit of God inspiring these words. But he captures the similarity of their responses to Jesus because their desires in many ways were closely aligned. Many of the religious leaders of the day, they were preoccupied with the exaltation of self. They were concerned about prestige. They were concerned about reputation. They were concerned chiefly not with how God viewed them, but with how others viewed them. Right? They, they wanted to be respected, right? and they carefully curated a particular image of themselves to the public eye, right? They were able to project to the public eye. Everything seemed to be good. Everything seemed to be in order from the viewpoint of other people. Now, we see that these apostles, including Jesus's close companions, right? Peter, James, and John, that they were obviously swept up into this desire to be great. They were swept up into this, this desire to be exalted, to be important, right? And this is a desire that is cultivated in their hearts, get this, despite their proximity to Jesus. It's a desire that's been cultivated in their hearts despite their proximity to Jesus, which is astounding. It's astounding to me, right? These people were close to Jesus, and this shows us that following Christ, it's more than just having the appearance of being close to him. Right? Anybody can curate or, or, or project this image of being close to Jesus, right? It's more than just showing up on Sundays as important as the Lord's Day gathering is. It's more than just a verbal assent, right? Our hearts our desires, what's on the inside has to be captured and subdued by the gospel of God. I think of all the different types of pride. The pride of a religious person. 
is perhaps the most dangerous pride because it's masked with religious language. It's covered with the appearance of loving God. It's covered with the appearance of loving the gospel. It's covered with the appearance of loving others. But in reality, deep down, right, the concern is self-preservation and the concern is self-exaltation. And none of us are off limits to wrestling with this. Right? Think of the type of men these apostles were. They were lowly fishermen. They were despised tax collectors. They were people that never had much of a reputation to begin with. Yet after spending some time with Jesus and being on the, the inner circle, if you will, instead of being like their savior, they became obsessed with just being seen with Jesus. I like being seen with him. They became obsessed about what following Jesus could get you. So at this stage of discipleship, it wasn't about just, just being with Jesus. It was about what came with following Jesus. It was about them being on the inside and everybody else on the outside. And if pride could touch these men from these humble beginnings in this sort of way, then pride can affect you and I, it can touch us. Right? Think about how it manifests itself in the church. Right? It shows up in, in various ways. Right? It shows up in the way that we think about others in the church. Right? It shows up in the way as it relates to who we'd be willing to accept as a brother or sister in Christ now. If we keep it close to our text this morning, because this is one of the most common ways it manifests itself in the church, is through this mentality, through this heart whose chief concern is, what can the church offer me instead of how can I serve God in the church? How can I serve God in the community of people that he's put around me? It's usually, uh, it manifests itself in, in such a way that is, what can I get out of fill in the blank. And let me make that more practical for us this morning. How many of us attend week in and week out, but we're not serving in any area of our lives? We look to build ourselves up, but we do nothing to build others up. How many of us hoard our time when we could use it to benefit God's kingdom? How many of us hoard our resources or hoard our abilities to serve others and instead we just serve ourselves? How many of us complain about things in the church instead of joyfully getting involved? I've found that the most difficult people to deal with in church culture, the, the people that you can never satisfy, they're usually the ones that are least invested and involved in the local church. They're usually the most self-righteous as well. Now, what is underneath this? It's a mentality of wanting to be first in the kingdom of God. It's a mentality of wanting to be served rather than thinking, how can I serve? Jesus had strong words for the Pharisees who much of their ministry, and again, it wasn't all of the Pharisees, but it was a large enough amount of the Pharisees that you know, we, we tend to see every time they come up uh, conflict between them and Christ. But he had strong words for these Pharisees, these religious people, these religious leaders that fostered this 
desire and sin of the people around me exist to serve me versus I should serve God by serving other people. He had, he had this to say. He said, woe to you. This is Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear, appear beautiful outwardly. Right? Good job on that. But inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, Jesus is always targeting the disordered desires, right? When we are outwardly sinning, when we're behaving in such a way that we can observe it in one, in one another, it's not because on the inside we were honoring God a few minutes before and then we all of a sudden start sinning against God and against another person outwardly. What comes out, what is observable, oftentimes our behavior, it comes from us cultivating something in our inner person for quite a long time. That's why Jesus targets the heart. That's why when you hear, when you read of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit was going to do, applying the works of Christ to the heart of man, right? You see a, a change of a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. But think of the contrast again. And let's do a thought experiment for just a moment. I mean, what if Jesus in his humanity forwent his suffering and his dying? He could have called legions of angels. And as we've seen over these last few weeks, and as we would confess as Christians, Jesus is the only innocent person, truly innocent person to have ever suffered, right? Right? the only person who truly didn't deserve the way in which he was treated, the different ways in which he was treated. But what if Jesus and his humanity came not to serve, but to be served? Or to put it another way, what if Jesus came to conquer and rule by the sword in his first advent the way that the apostles thought that he should? Well, we would all still be in our sins. We would all still be in our sins. You and I wouldn't be here this morning The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, he articulates for us the humility of Jesus and how the the humility, the, the, the servant nature of Jesus led to our redemption. And as he does that, he tells us at the same time to adopt the mindset of Christ. Flip over with me just quickly, Philippians chapter 2, or you can look up here on the screen. The Apostle Paul says this to the church of Philippi, he says, If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each person esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others." Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance 
as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Paul deals with selfishness inside the church of Philippi. The things that were being done from a place of ungodly ambition and conceit. And he, he did so by directing the gaze of the church on Christ who descended for our redemption and is now exalted at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. This is the paradoxical way of the Christian life that we have to grasp, that we have to remember. The way up is down. To save your life, we looked at this a few weeks ago, right? To save your life, you must what? Lose it. To be first, you must be last. Yet we get that wrong time and time again. Right? We prioritize ourselves. We prioritize our agenda. And if others do not prioritize us and our agenda, our feelings get hurt and we become embittered. But here's the thing. It's not about you and me primarily. It's not. It's about Christ and us fixing our mind and our heart on our Savior who served us so well by dying for us. It's about our Savior who's Again, now resurrected and has ascended at the right hand of the Father. It's about us gazing at him in gratitude for the grace and faith that he's freely given to us. And in turn, looking to others and serving them in such a way that communicates our contentment in Christ and says, Wow, look at our glorious Christ. Quote, he must increase and I must what? decrease. John 3.30 should be the prayer of every Christian. Jesus makes this more practical for his apostles. He's he's not going to let his teaching stay out in the, the ether. But look back at our text, starting verse 36. Then he, Christ, he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, stop there for just a moment. I don't want the significance of what Jesus is doing here to be lost on us. Because of the high mortality rates in the first century, children weren't considered valuable, really, until they lived past the age of five years old. For, for a parent to lose a child under the age of five was, uh, was somewhat common. So, so children under five, they, they weren't really valued in society at large. Right? Why, why value them if they're not going to help us economically? Why value them if they can't serve some longer-term purpose or some longer-term need? So what Jesus is doing here is, is quite counter-cultural. Right? He takes a child, one that would not be noticed, and he places him on his lap, and he tells his disciples, serve him. Serve him. 
notice him, receive him. And maybe you need to hear those words regarding a brother or sister in Christ here this morning. Maybe you've avoided someone, you've been avoiding somebody that you need to serve. Maybe you have these opportunities to die to self and love well in your family or in your neighborhood, and you need to hear those words this morning, serve him. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe things aren't good and neither of you will call a ceasefire, so things just keep getting worse. Serve. Serve one another. We see here these apostles that were so full of pride and consumed with being served, right? These apostles that were arguing about who would be the greatest, they were told that the way of Jesus, the way of the cross is that of a servant. And not just a servant, but a servant of the least of these, a servant to one in which you don't want to serve, right? Any of us can serve somebody we want to serve, right? It's it's not what Christ is teaching about here. What about those we don't want to serve? Are we as Christians still obligated to lay our lives down and to serve them? And we see how well this harmonizes with other passages For instance, taking Jesus' teaching about his coming again in judgment, he says this, when the Son of Man comes, and I think it's up here, yeah, Matthew 25 here, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he'll Set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, we did Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we... See you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say, Assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Again, this very countercultural message, right, of ministering to those who perhaps would be avoided in this society. There's a close association between the church seeing herself is a servant to the least of these and its connection to Jesus. Right? Both of these passages, this Matthew passage, the Mark passage, both of these teachings here, right, they get to this. Right? To receive the least of these is to receive Christ, and to receive Christ is to receive the Father. Or to put it another way, to serve the least of these is to serve Christ, and to serve Christ is to serve the Father, since Jesus and the Father are one. Now, is this Jesus teaching a a works-based salvation? Do we serve so that we can have right standing with God? Absolutely not. We know from the totality of Scripture that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we're saved. We look to Jesus alone as our Savior. And at the same time, we look to Him as our our example, as we've noted in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Right? What we see in these teachings is Jesus putting our focus 
on those that we often do not want to engage with. Right? And that's pride crushing to have to engage with people that we don't want to engage with. Right? Those that we seek to avoid. Right? That's where you need to serve. That's who you need to serve. And this gets us to the second point this morning. And I'll make this point much quicker. But God-focused humility is a remedy for pride. God-focused humility is a remedy for pride. Now, that's the only way that we can walk the path Jesus has called us to walk. We have to stop focusing on ourselves and instead focus on our triune God. And this, in turn, produces humility. Right? And there's just two, two specific areas. We need humility and service. Right? If we're gazing at the Lord rightly... By his word, according to the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit of God, it will in turn motivate us to serve those that God has sovereignly placed in our path. That's a natural outworking. So instead of being self-consumed, instead of constantly wanting to be served, we become others-focused. Let me put it another way. Being God-centered makes you others-focused in a sustainable way way. Being God-centered makes you others-focused in a sustainable way, right? Being God-centered, it frees you up to love others in a way that honors him and in turn produces a deep abiding joy in your life. Why does it give you joy? Because God's designed it this way, right? It's how his world works best. You come to serve. You come to help in the name of the triune God. You don't do it for recognition. You don't do it because you're trying to manipulate someone. You don't do it because you're trying to get some outcome from them. You do it because your joy in the Lord, your contentment in the Lord drives your serving and loving of other people. J.C. Ross says this, flesh and blood can see no other way to greatness than crowns and rank and wealth and high positions in the world. The Son of God declares that the way lies in devoting ourselves to the care of the weakest and lowliest in his flock. And the second thing, we need humility and service. Secondly, we need humility in how we view, and we've been getting at this the whole sermon this morning, but just to make it clear. We need humility in how we view our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look back at our text one final time, particularly verses 38 to 41. And just as Jesus finished this teaching about how his disciples are to serve, John, he speaks up. And what he says is so disappointing, right? As I was reading it, you know, I, I get to that part where John talks and I'm like, what are you doing? In my own pride, not seeing that I have, I've I've done that a, a million times. But John speaks up and says this, John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, or who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. Jesus said, do not forbid him. For no one who works in a miracle, a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, I hope the irony is not lost on you here. 
Right? John forbade, and the other apostles forbade a man from doing what we had just read about a few weeks ago that they couldn't do. Right? This unnamed man was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. The apostles, just a few verses earlier, were unable to cast out a demon. Right? And in just a short time since, their inability to do that, which should have produced humility... Right In their pride, they're rebuking a man for successfully casting out a demon in the name of Jesus. And this is the interesting part. They didn't do this because he wasn't following Jesus. It's not what our text says. Our, our text doesn't say that he was not following Jesus. The man was invoking the name of Jesus. The apostles forbade him because he wasn't following them. Look at the text again with me in verse 38. We forbade him because he does not follow us. Us. He wasn't on the inner circle. Again, notice the irony. Jesus and the apostles were always in conflict with the approved religious leaders who sought to discredit them and to tell them to cease and desist because they weren't authorized to minister. They weren't a part of the approved list. And what do we see the apostles doing if not the same thing? Right? This man wasn't a part of their inner circle, the approved list, so they rebuked him. They didn't approve of him. He wasn't one of them. Not truly. Now, the passage is very similar to what Moses experienced in Numbers chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. I'll just read it to you for time's sake. It says, A young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of the choice men, he answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, he and the elders of Israel. Right? John, one of Jesus' choice men, one of the men that are on the inner circle of the inner circle. Right? Joshua, one of Mo Moses' choice men. Right? They both sought to have a man rebuked, have someone rebuked that was doing some sort of ministerial work. And we see that it's pride at the heart of John and the apostles in the same way that it was pride in the heart of Joshua, who eventually, by the way, led the Israelites into the promised land. Right? Moses tells Joshua, are you zealous for my sake? In other words, this isn't about me. This isn't about me. This is about you. Right? Joshua was envious of someone else in ministry. And so were the apostles. They were envious that this man had success in casting out a demon. It was further evidence just of their hardness of heart, their unbelief, their pride. And instead of humbling themselves, they rebuked the man. And Jesus says, don't rebuke him. He says that the one that isn't against us is on our side. Paul says something similar, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Quote, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And pride, it's a nasty thing. It clouds our judgment of other people. It oftentimes is the very thing that you know, drives our judgments of other people. And it causes unnecessary divisions amongst people that will spend an eternity together. So the questions before us, does the gospel shape our view of others? Do they need to be 
conformed to Christ in order to have fellowship with you, or do they need to be more conformed into your image? What sins disqualify them from fellowship with you? You know, you think, sure, they can be forgiven and reconciled to God, but functionally they are going to be estranged from you. What about the success of other brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that be spiritual success or success with particular goals that maybe you've had for yourself but you haven't achieved? Are you happy for them or are you envious of them because you want to be exalted? We need, all of us collectively, we need humility. We need to stop angling on how best we can exalt ourselves. We need to get off of this path of self-preservation and we need to fix our gaze instead on Christ and walk in God-centered humility. And a practical way that we can do this is by serving those we want to avoid. And here's an aid to help us foster humility. We all deserve an eternal hell. We all deserve an eternal hell. There's no room for pride at the judgment seat of God. Even the seemingly most moral person this side of eternity inherits peace with God by sheer grace. So we need to look to our resurrected Savior in gratitude and allow that to shape our view and allow that to shape our service to other people. I'll leave you with this quote, and then I'm going to pray. Another J.C. Ryle quote. It's an awful fact, whether we like to allow it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which besets human nature. We're all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally, fan- we all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than we have. It's an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve thought they had got everything that their merits deserved. It's a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the garb of humility. It's a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance. It keeps us back from Christ. It checks brotherly love and nips in the bud spiritual anxiety. Let us watch against it and be on our guard. Of all garments, none is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, we ask that you would grant us humility, that you would grant us a deep abiding joy in you, and that in turn that would shape the way we love and serve others. And we pray this in Jesus' name.